Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. What about death? Grievous injury. Is that adult enough for you? It is. Well, if that's not uh, the kind of thing you're looking for in a podcast, please check out the press box. David Shoemaker and Brian Curtis. Always cheerful over there. Always cheerful. (laughs) One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why refusing to call someone by their sobriquet is among the boldest moves you can make, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Whoever's nearest the receiver, dial 62442. He said. Ron did it, his arm bent bizarrely to reach the dial. As it whirred back into place, the cool female voice sounded inside the box. Welcome to the Ministry of Magic. Please state your name and business. Harry Potter, Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger. Harry said very quickly. Ginny Weasley, Neville Longbottom, Luna Lovegood. We're here to save someone, unless your ministry can do it first. Thank you, said the cool female voice. Visitors, please take the badges and attach them to the front of your robes. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today... Great website. Now that he's finished teaching me the finer points of unforgivable curse usage. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal! Yeah. You need to mean them. Just like we mean everything on here on Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet. The mysterious Harry Potter universe, whether you're partial to the brain room, gross, the planet room, or the death chamber... Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever platform you get your podcasts on. And please rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Yes. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to discuss what's behind that locked door. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we Mm -hmm. explored how subterfuge shapes chapters 29 through 33 of Order of the Phoenix. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 34 through 36, and there will be tears. Just putting that out there now, there will be tears. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep! On details from all seven books, end date films, and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account from the moment Sirius's knife melts in our hands. That should have been the, one of the many signs to turn back. <laughs> so mount your thestrals. Hold on tight, because it's time to head to the Department of Mysteries. Be quiet, Mal. I shall deal with you in a moment. Do you think I have entered the binge mode studios to hear your sniveling apologies? I've entered because it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in order chapters 34 to 36 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! After a thrilling, for some, and terrifying, for others, ride on the Thestrals, Harry and his friends arrive at the Ministry, where they travel down to the Department of Mysteries. Yes, what a wonderful place. After a series of misadventures involving the department's various rooms and doors, they find the hall that has been haunting Harry's dreams, but neither Sirius nor Voldemort is there. Instead, 
There's a prophecy containing both Harry's and the Dark Lord's names. And something else. A host of Death Eaters led by Lucius should have been in jail. Should have been in jail lots of times. <laughs> Lucius, lock him and ask man Malfoy. Lock him up. Ready to snatch it. The teens fight. And when all seems lost, receive reinforcements from the Order of the Phoenix. The last to arrive. He was doing doing (laughs) shit. He had to park his broom. Parking was crazy. I had to go all around the block. And then I. Last to arrive is Albus Dumbledore looking just, you know, refreshed after some time away from Hogwarts, magicking Death Eaters left and right. Before he can catch them all, though, and you gotta catch them all. Bellatrix Lestrange fires a curse at Sirius Black, who was flossing a little bit mm-hmm. on his Oberyn Martell shit, mm-hmm. hitting him square in the chest and sending him through the Death Chamber's veil. Phoenix song for Sirius Black. Let's get that Phoenix song! Sirius disappears. Lupin says he's dead. And Harry devastated and enraged, chases after Bellatrix through the Ministry's atrium. And then a new challenger enters the fray, standing six foot one (laughs) from death, Lord Voldemort. (laughs) Sorry, Tom, Tommy Riddle, who proceeds to engage in a wondrous duel with Dumbledore before disapparating with his number one gal, Bellatrix Lestrange. (laughs) Tough night ahead for those two, though. He's not happy. Yeah, well, you know, you can work it out in various ways. (laughs) Ministry wizards arrive as the duel concludes, and Fudge, fucking corn Fudge, finally realizes he's back. Fudge, like, had to see him in the fucking atrium of the ministry for him. Oh, what is that, Voldemort? (laughs) (laughs) Brutal luck for corn. Jason. Yeah. It's time you learn the difference between podcasts and dreams. Aha! And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 34 through 36 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is recklessness. Chapter 34, The Department of Mysteries. Harry Potter does not do things halfway. No. That's what makes him so compelling. He is daring and courageous, but rarely is he wise. Throughout our story, when he acts, it's often right on the edge of recklessness. He is, in other words, a kid, Mm -hmm. still discovering the boundaries of his world of what he can do, certain to make mistakes. It's just that his mistakes are compounded exponentially by his celebrities, connection to Voldemort, his standing as the savior of the wizarding world. Earlier in our story, danger, real danger, events of real mortal peril were largely thrust upon Harry. Yes. You know, he didn't have anything to do with Voldemort showing up at his house when he was an infant. And he responded always in those moments with courage. Now he's looking for trouble actively, spoiling for a fight. He is mistaking recklessness for bravery. Yes, Voldemort has lain an immaculately crafted trap, but this isn't a blindside ambush like in the little Hangleton graveyard. Harry can't say he was not warned by numerous people, by Dumbledore, about the importance of his occlumency lessons. Promise me, he said. By Snape, about the very same thing. Harry has been told that Voldemort is aware of their link, was told by Snape explicitly that the Dark Lord could exploit their connection with, quote, absurd ease. Sirius and Lupin urged him. And of course, Hermione has been relentless on this topic. 
sap think? Is there not something wrong with this picture? Our friends will mount thestrals for their fateful flight to the ministry. That Harry can see them means he has witnessed death and felt its weight. Yes. Really processed what it meant. But there's another level of tragedy with death that he can experience. Because Cedric's cold-blooded murder was no fault of Harry's. There was nothing that he could have done to avoid that. Harry now, though, is the leader of Dumbledore's army, and at least in Ron and Hermione's case, he's asking his friends, his soldiers, essentially, to back his decision to rush to the ministry with their lives if necessary. Dumbledore will rightly take much of the blame for what happens there tonight in these chapters. But Harry must carry his share as well. He's still a kid, yes, but he's taken on adult responsibilities, and war is not a game. He cannot say he was not warned. If they were too late. That's the fear that has Harry fully in its grip, driving him forward on a cold, fast flight atop the Thestrals. Quote, Twilight fell. The sky turned to a light, dusky purple, littered with tiny silver stars. And soon it was only the lights of muggle towns that gave them any clue of how far from the ground they were or how very fast they were traveling. Such is the depth of both his feeling for Sirius and his connection to Voldemort that Harry is certain he would know if his godfather were already dead. They arrive, finally, at the Ministry. Ron shuddering as he says, never again, a midair journey on an invisible mount, yet the latest test of his and others' unwavering loyalty to Harry. The group piles into the telephone box and Ron dials 62442. Magic. Welcome to the Ministry of Magic. Please state your name and business. Harry shouts quickly. Harry Potter, Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger, Ginny Weasley, Neville Longbottom, Luna Lovegood. We're here to save someone, unless your ministry can do it first. Out come their ID badges, and this is just a delightful touch. Harry Potter, rescue mission. This, considering how fervently Harry pushed back, how wounded he was when Hermione— extremely wounded. (laughs) Extremely wounded. When Hermione observed that he has a saving people thing, this moment is almost amusing. And it is a measure of how myopic Harry is in this moment, that he is on the one hand denying this charge and then on the other proclaiming it so boldly that in essence, a version of it winds up printed out and pinned to his chest as all the while, of course, he fails to spot this contradiction. Consider that he is shouting his intention into a gateway for the headquarters of the governing body that he knows through Fudge and Umbridge has been working to thwart him all year. This seems ill-advised. What if that cool female voice instantly alerted Corn Fudge mm-hmm. or Dolores Umbridge mm-hmm. or some other unholy opposed bureaucrat mm-hmm. and Harry wound up at Wantip before he even got a chance to make his way down to that corridor? He's not thinking about these things because despite Hermione's endless pleas, he's not thinking practically. Nope. He's flying not only by Thestral, but also by the seat of his pants. Harry, terrified that every second could be serious as last, can't even conceive of anything beyond the next moment, agreeing just bafflingly to wand registration. Yeah. Registering your wand in the building of the people who want to stop you. He leads his group on, the telephone box lowering them into the ministry's atrium. It seems oddly deserted to Harry. No fires in the grates. The security guard who would be taking his wand for registration— Ominously absent. And yet he presses on. They enter the lift, and Harry jams the number nine until they're descending, the sound booming in the empty space. Department of Mysteries, the cool voice says, quote, 
Harry turned toward the plain black door. After months and months of dreaming about it, he was here at last. From the book, Harry still did not want to take them all with him, but it seemed he had no choice. Jeannie, Neville, and Luna have come this far with him. They're not turning back. Together, they plow ahead through the door, and it's just like the dream, only it's not. The corridor, the door they just walked through, the circular room with its blue candles and all the doors all around the periphery, everything is the same except in his dream, he was certain about where he was supposed to go. And that feeling eludes him now from the book. Someone shut the door, Harry muttered. He regretted giving this order the moment Neville had obeyed it. The lights go out, leaving only the eerie glow of candles. From the book again, in his dream, Harry had always walked purposefully across this room to the door immediately opposite the entrance and walked on. But there were around a dozen doors here. Think of Hermione's warning again. Mm -hmm. You've never been there, Harry. You've dreamed about the place. That's all. When Harry tells Neville what to do, the use of the word order here is important. Harry is leading now. And his very first command, once they've entered the Department of Mysteries, entered the battlefield, is one he immediately wants back. The wall of the round room begins to rotate. And Ginny suggests that this has been done to prevent them from knowing how they got in, thus to keep them from being able to get out. Harry knows instinctively that she's correct. The jaws of the trap are actually visibly closing around them. But Harry can't reverse course now. He can't do this halfway. He doubles down. Well, that doesn't matter now, said Harry, forcefully blinking, trying to erase the blue lines from his vision and clutching his wand tighter than ever. We won't need to get out until we've found Sirius. Hermione begs him not to shout for Sirius, quote, but Harry had never needed her advice less. His instinct was to keep as quiet as possible for the time being. Mere minutes ago, he was flying, visible, through the sky, then shouting a challenge into a telephone mouthpiece. Already this quickly, his confidence is receding. Continuing on in quiet, once doubt and fear have entered his mind, feels actually more rash in a way than charging in so boldly in the first place. Harry tries to navigate by feel, searching for that dream certainty as if it were a radio signal. The first room they try contains a massive tank containing not fish, but floating brains. Really gross. I can't wait to talk more about that room. Yeah. There are more doors off that room, too. Quote, Harry's heart sank. How big was this place? All he can do now is trust what he's seen. So they go back into the circular room to start over. And Hermione, showing her typical sterling awareness and ingenuity, casts flagrate on the door that they're exiting so that a fiery X appears and they'll know once the circular wall spins again not to revisit that room. Hermione has been critical mm -hmm. of this mission. She clearly thinks it's heedless, but she's here. And that means that they can at least be logical amid their recklessness. So they try another door, entering a large room like an amphitheater with benches leading down to a sunken stone pit below. In the center of that pit sits a dais, atop which rests an ancient-looking stone archway from which a black veil flutters in the still air, quote, as though it had just been touched. Harry speaks. Who's there? He hurries down, drawn to the archway, which, quote, looked much taller from where he stood now than when he had been looking down on it from above. Death always does. Harry calls Sirius's name. Quote, he had the strangest feeling that there was someone standing right behind the veil on the other side of the archway. Hermione implores him to move on, saying, this isn't right, Harry. Come on, let's go. And Harry can tell that she's scared, much more so than she was in the last room with the brains. But he is 
mesmerized, frozen in place. Quote, Harry thought the archway had a kind of beauty about it, old though it was. The gently rippling veil intrigued him. He felt a strong inclination to climb up on the dais and walk through it. Harry has always been drawn toward and associated with death. When he was just a baby, he became the only known person to survive the killing curse. When he gazed into the mirror of Erised, he saw not something in a vibrant future, but his parents, his family, ghosts of the past. Think about his relationship with the phoenix, a symbol of regeneration. Rebirth, by definition, must follow death. Harry thought he saw the Grimm. He actually can see Thestrals. In the future, he'll choose to hunt Horcruxes over Hallows. In so doing, rejecting the pursuit of immortality. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione each say in unison which hallow they would choose, Harry picks not the fabled death stick that he will master or the very cloak of invisibility that has served him so well, but the resurrection stone, the object that can bring some version of loved ones back. He'll carry that stone at the end as he makes his fateful walk into the forest, calling forth the forms of loved ones lost as he moves willingly toward his own demise sacrificing himself for his friends. Mere chapters from here, Harry will hear the words, neither can live while the other survives. But he's never been able to live free of the pull of the beyond. And here, now, it calls to him. He hears voices whispering from beyond the curtain. He asks if anyone else can hear. And as he does so, quote, without really meaning to put it there, he found his foot was on the dais. Death is calling to him and he is inching closer. I can hear them too, Luna says. There are people in there. It is no accident that Harry and Luna, united by their ability to see Thestrals, by the loss of a parent, by their understanding of the impact of grief and their belief in an afterlife, can sense what's on the other side. Neville, who can also see Thestrals and has also suffered terrible loss, and Ginny, who came so close to breaching the divide herself in the Chamber of Secrets, and who is spiritually inclined, unbound by the rationality that rules someone like Hermione, are also transfixed. In mere pages from now, Sirius will fall through to the other side to where Harry sensed beings there. The veil is a barrier between the realms of the living and the dead, a portal to what Dumbledore would call the next great adventure. Finally, Hermione calls Harry back by saying Sirius's name. Only the image of his godfather bound and helpless snaps Harry too. This mission comes down to essentially what Harry feels is correct, and his curiosity is now irresistible. They move on, but the next door Harry tries, once back in the circular room, is locked. Aloamora has no effect, and when Harry tries to use the knife that Sirius gave him, the blade melts. A terrible omen. Yes. Ron stares at the room with, quote, a mixture of apprehension and longing. Fitting, given his relationship to love, they try another room. Finally, this is it. Harry says. They pass through the room full of clocks, clicking just like in Harry's dream. They're getting closer. They pass a strange container in which a hummingbird is perpetually hatching. This is the time room where the ministry's stock of time turners are kept no longer <laughs> after mm-hmm. this. Harry knows his goal is just one door away from the book. His heart was now pumping so hard and fast he felt it must interfere with his speech. And yet on he leads them, now into the vast hall of seemingly endless shelves containing innumerable dusty glass orbs. Instructing his comrades to keep their wands out, he moves down the rows towards number 97, where he expects to find Sirius, but instead finds nothing. Harry begins to panic now. Yes. His mouth goes dry. His mind isn't there yet, but the way his body feels is telling him, this is wrong. Yes. You've made a mistake. 
He checks the neighboring aisles. Nothing. No one from the book. All was echoing dusty silence. Hermione tells him that she doesn't think Sirius is here from the book. Nobody spoke. Harry did not want to look at any of them. He felt sick. He did not understand why Sirius was not here. He had to be here. This was where he, Harry, had seen him. Are they too late? It dawns on Harry for the first time, really for the first time, that he might be wrong about this. There's no sign, no hint of a struggle. And then Ron, Ronnie, finds something. (laughs) At first, Harry doesn't want to hear what Ron has to say from the book. Did not want to hear Ron tell him he had been stupid. His face grows hot. He doesn't want to face, quote, the other's accusing stares. But Ron says, have you seen this? Now, okay, King, clearly he (laughs) hasn't because he would have said. (laughs) Right. But we'll keep going because you're on a roll now. You're doing well now. He continues, "It's it's got your name on it. Yes, indeed. It's a dusty glass globe like all the rest, but the label on the shelf marked with a date, quote, some 16 years previously reads, SPT to APWBD, Dark Lord and question mark, Harry Potter. Well, well, well. Chills. SPT might be a bit tough to suss that one out, but... APWBD. I mean, who do we know that even has that many names? Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Pertaining to Voldemort, no doubt, and Harry Potter, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yet another thing, a real tangible thing with his name written on it mm-hmm. that Dumbledore has kept secret from him. Harry reaches for it because, of course, he's come too far. Hermione, for the last time, issues a warning. Harry, I don't think you should touch it. Then Neville, for good measure, adds, don't, Harry. Mm -hmm. But despite Sirius's ominous absence, despite how wrong everything has gone so far, despite the fact that everything, if you look at it dispassionately, looks like a trap, Mm -hmm. his impetuousness has a hold of him again. It's got my name on it, Harry says, and of course it does. It's so simple. It has his name on it from the book. And feeling slightly reckless, he closes his fingers around the dusty ball surface. Sirius's fate for the moment, absolutely forgotten. It's warm in his hand. He pulls it down from the book again, expecting, even hoping that something dramatic was going to happen. Nothing does from the book. And then from right behind them, a drawling voice said, very good, Potter. Now turn around nice and slowly and give that to me. Just unbelievable writing. Yeah. Just incredible stage setting and storytelling and plotting. This is my favorite stretch of her writing. Oh, my God. Chapter 35, Beyond the Veil. Some of the best moments in stories are the ones you wish turned out differently or didn't turn out at all, didn't happen at all. Returning again and again to these stories, to the moments in a book or a film or an episode, I always think ridiculously, what if it doesn't happen this time? What if the Red Wedding doesn't happen this time? Me too. What if Arya gets there and gets to be with her family and everything's okay? The Battle of the Department of Mysteries is one of those moments. A dozen Death Eaters appear out of the darkness. Lucius Malfoy leads them. To me, Potter repeated the drawling voice of Lucius Malfoy as he held out his hand, palm up. Mm. Harry is stunned, sickened at the circumstances he has led his friends into, far from home, outnumbered and surrounded. Where's Sirius? Harry asks. The Death Eaters laugh, and a voice belonging to Bellatrix Lestrange cries in triumph. The Dark Lord always knows. Oh my God, that moment. Confirmation, (laughs) as if we needed any, that they've blundered into a trap. Always, Malfoy replies, but Harry can't yet let it go, channeling the moment in chamber when Harry finds Ginny crumpled at the feet of his good friend Tom Riddle. Harry cannot accept what is so obviously in front of his face. 
Bellatrix is mocking him as he fights against the tide. The little baby woke up frightened and fought what it dreamed was true, said the woman in a horrible mock baby voice. Harry, ignoring her, tells his friends not to act just yet. He's cautioning patience at last. Bellatrix mocks him, and now it's just shit talk. It's not just for show. She's stunned. She can't believe he's actually readying to fight them. Malfoy replies, Oh, you don't know Potter as I do, Bellatrix. He has a great weakness for heroics. The Dark Lord understands this about him. And this is the knife in the heart. Hermione's suspicion, her saving people thing warning confirmed. Devastating. And what can Harry do but continue to hold on to the last fiber of his belief, that last thread, as the rope sinks below the surface from the book? I know Sirius is here, said Harry, though panic was causing his chest to constrict and he felt as though he could not breathe properly. I know you've got him. Again, laughter. Then Malfoy delivers a dose of reality, hard and cruel. It's time you learn the difference between life and dreams, Potter, said Malfoy. Now give me the prophecy or we start using wands. Oh, my God. It's I'm like shaking Extremely right now. rough. The, uh. the, the tragedy of the many tragedies of this scene of these chapters of this moment is, and we'll get to this more later, too. Is, oh, that's something that Harry needed to hear. And it's very unfortunate that it's Lucius Malfoy who's telling him that. Oh, my God. That's devastating. Yeah. I mean, he has always relied on his instincts, and they haven't always led him to the right place, but they've never betrayed him quite like this. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's gutting. However, the Death Eaters have clearly underestimated Harry. And how could they not have, considering the arrogance of a man they follow and worship, and in Bellatrix's case, fuck? Oh, yeah. Gotta inject a little levity into this episode. Gotta inject inject a little something into something. We have discussed Harry's recklessness and how it brought him and his friends to this perilous moment. Harry now is considering that too. Quote, the knot in Harry's stomach tightened. If Sirius really was not here, he had led his friends to their deaths for no reason at all. But it is also worth considering Voldemort through this lens. Harry is 15 years old. Of course, he's immature, Mm -hmm. overconfident at times in his own abilities. And he has as much of a right as anybody to be overconfident. Voldemort's lust for power and control, his hubris in pursuing them, is a form of immaturity on steroids. He is completely devoid of empathy, unburdened by doubt. He wants to rule the world and thinks that the only justification he needs is that it's within his power to do so. The wishes of those he seeks to destroy and rule are beneath his interest, his notice even. But of course, those people will not just go away. That is not the nature of life, of war. The innocent will suffer. Yes, we see it in this story time and again. Cowards will stand aside. Many will die. But people are stubborn. They will not just disappear, not without a fight. To fight and fight again and keep fighting. That line from Dumbledore that we and Harry keep returning to. Harry has been rash, it's true. But perhaps the reason that it's come to this is that so many wise witches and wizards whose job it was or is to lead have been too cautious, too protective of the status quo, of this fool's gold piece. What's required now, reckless or no, is a fighter. And Harry is ready to fight. He has beaten Voldemort every time. Every time. He's been lucky, yes, there is no doubt. He'll be the first to say it. But as Bill Parcells once said, That's right. at some point, you are what your record says you are. <laughs> and 0-4 is a tough 
luck. It's tough luck. One that Voldemort and his Death Eaters cannot They accept. actually cannot accept it. Cannot. And that, of course, is their undoing. It makes them hasty, too. In the midst of this back and forth between Harry and Lucius, Bellatrix tries to accio the prophecy out of Harry's hands. Quote, Harry was just ready for her. He shouted Protego before she had finished her spell. And though the glass sphere slipped to the tips of his fingers, he managed to cling onto it. This is not going to be easy for either side. Oh, he knows how to play, little bitty baby Potter. Oh, man. Said Floor. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) said Bellatrix. Very well, then. I told you no, Lucius Malfoy roared at her. If you smash it, and this is a fascinating moment. The Death Eaters desperately want this globe, clearly. And they'll walk over each other's corpses and kill all of Harry's friends to get it. Yes. Harry could not give one shit about the globe because he doesn't yet know any better from the book. He just wanted to get them all out of this alive, make sure that none of his friends paid a terrible price for his stupidity. Harry finally understands what the cost of his impulsiveness could be. And that realization, though immensely painful, has given him some clarity at last and a plan of action. Use the prophecy as leverage. Buy time, stick together, and be open to his friends' ideas, finally. Though, devil's advocate, if the Death Eaters want this, clearly lured Harry here to get this, it must be important. It is unambiguously the weapon. And Harry doesn't need to know what the weapon does to know that Dumbledore and the Order of the Phoenix have spent the better part of a year trying to keep it out of Voldemort's hands. Nothing is more important than saving his friends' lives right now. That's what motivates Harry. The desire to save Sirius is why they're standing in this hall in the first place. But cold though it may sound, the calculus that Harry's currently exploring is a recklessness of its own, a gamble that what he'd be losing would matter much less than what he'd gain. When Bellatrix steps forward, revealing her skull-like face, threatens to torture Ginny to get Harry to comply, Harry says that he'll smash the orb if they want any of them. This tiny sphere is his only shield from the book. So, said Harry, what kind of prophecy are we talking about anyway? He could not think what to do but to keep talking, to keep them talking. Neville's arm was pressed against his, and he could feel him shaking. He could feel one of the others quicken breath on the back of his head. He was hoping they were all thinking hard about ways to get out of this because his mind was blank. It turns out Harry's time-stalling tactic is about to unlock quite a bit. Not all good. The Death Eaters actually cannot believe that Dumbledore hasn't told Harry about the prophecy. It is inconceivable for them. What kind of prophecy, repeated Bellatrix, the grin fading from her face? You jest, Harry Potter. No, Harry's dead-ass serious, Bella. Nope, not jesting, he says. Normally, when Harry feels, knows that someone else possesses more information than he does, particularly about his own life, he is apoplectic with rage. The only blessing of this moment is that he's too busy trying to stay alive to worry about that. He's looking everywhere he can, trying to find an escape. And so he keeps talking. Words are often the first weapons to be brandished in battle. And so it's fitting that here Harry goes on the offensive with truth bombs. First, he says, you know whose name? Quote, how come Voldemort wants it? Bellatrix is gobsmacked. You dare speak his name, whispered Bellatrix. He won't even let me do that in bed. (laughs) Harry starts to say his name again, and then she shrieks, Shut your mouth! You dare speak his name with your unworthy lips. You dare besmirch it with your half-blood's tongue. Harry's finding his stride, once again unheeding. 
Did you know he's a half-blood, too? said Harry recklessly. Hermione gave a little moan in his ear. Voldemort, yeah, his mother was a witch, but his dad was a muggle. Or has he been telling you lot he's pure blood? <laughs> Ooh, Harry. Bellatrix snaps. Don't talk about my mans that way! <laughs> she fires a stunner, and Malfoy knocks her aim off. Orbs shattering. Ghostly figures emerging from the... Dusty glass balls that the spell hit. Dusty glass. Dusty balls. Those dusty balls. (laughs) Clipped fragments of their speech overheard. The bickering continues. Do not attack. We need the prophecy, Lucia says. He dared. He dares, shrieked Bellatrix incoherently. He stands there, filthy half-blood. Wait until we've got the prophecy, bawled Malfoy. The shattered orbs have given Harry an idea, but he still needs to stall for time, which he does by asking what's so special about this orb in his hand. Do not play games with us, Potter, said Malfoy. I'm not, buddy. I don't know what the fuck is going on. Lucia says, Dumbledore never told you that the reason you bear that scar was hidden in the bowels of the Department of Mysteries, said Malfoy, sneeringly. This trips up Harry. I, what? What about my scar? He was not expecting this. If not for Hermione's frantic, what, forcing him to again focus on his exit strategy, he might have gotten lost in that intrigue, a verbal pull almost as strong as the veils. Perhaps the most trenchant commentary on the way Dumbledore has managed this war and Harry's role in it is just Malfoy and Bellatrix's reactions to finding out that Dumbledore has kept Harry largely in the dark. Dumbledore never told you? Malfoy says, clearly they piece together not knowing is what kept Harry from taking the bait earlier. Malfoy continues, the Dark Lord wondered why you didn't come running when he showed you the place it was hidden in your dreams. He thought natural curiosity would make you want to hear the exact wording. Wow, what does this mean? And why did Voldemort care? Even worse than all of that, Harry now has to learn about how prophecy storage protocol works from fucking Lucius Malfoy and Bellatrix Lestrange. Why? Harry asks. And Malfoy sounds incredulously delighted. He is delighted to tell Harry how this works. Because the only people who are permitted to retrieve a prophecy from the Department of Mysteries, Potter, are those about whom it was made, as the Dark Lord discovered when he attempted to use others to steal it for him. And why does he want anyone retrieving this? Haven't you ever wondered why the Dark Lord tried to kill you as a baby? Now, oh boy, many times over the course of her work on the series and our frantic consumption of it, Rowling said, in essence, that the key question wasn't why did Harry live, but rather why didn't Voldemort die? And of course, the Horcrux of Veal is one of the most seminal, not just in our story, but all fantasy literature. Yet this question is as key as any. Why did Voldemort go there in the first place? That decision defined the course of Harry's entire life. It cost him his parents. It doomed him to a childhood at Privet Drive. Gave him the scar that makes it impossible for him to just melt into a crowd ever. And for the first time in his entire life, someone's not only telling him there's a reason, but telling him that he has a way to find out what it is. From the book, was this prophecy the reason Harry's parents had died, the reason he carried his lightning bolt scar, was the answer to all of this clutched in his hand? Voldemort couldn't come to get it. As Bellatrix explained, he can't risk walking into the ministry when those fools are still denying his return. He used Harry like he tried to use Sturgis and Bode, but in using Harry— He's literally put the weapon in his enemy's hand. Harry could take it, try to use it, but instead his brazen spirit seizes again and he shouts, now. The hint he gave to Hermione worked. They bellow collectively, reducto, and smash the shelves around him. They run under the cover of shattered glass and vague echoes. When Harry, Neville, and Hermione make it out of the hall, 
She seals the door. And only then do they realize that they're alone. Where, where are the others? Gasped Harry. They are terrified for themselves, for their friends. After Lucius issues his marching orders, which they hear through the door, and which includes the sanctioned murder of all children but the prophecy holding Harry, two Death Eaters enter the time room where Harry, Hermione, and Neville are. Harry physically charges one who's about to use Avada Kedavra on Hermione. Neville, in his haste to help, wildly casts Expelliarmus, disarming both Harry and his foe. In an effort to repair the damage he's done, Neville casts Stupefy, shattering a cabinet full of hourglasses, the time-turners. Another scramble, another stunner, and one Death Eater falls back into the bell jar, his head absorbed as if into a soap bubble, shrinking into a baby's and then aging back into a man's. Tough tough look for my guy. (laughs) Man. (laughs) Quote, they were all gazing open-mouthed, appalled. (laughs) This is a highly effective narrative technique, a brief pause in the frenzy that forces us to consider the magic that's actually at play in these rooms. The Department of Mysteries, it's right there in the name. Time, space, thought, destiny, love, death. The greatest enigmas in the world. As the Death Eater pulls his head free, a grotesque violation of nature marches toward (laughs) Harry. Man's body, infant head. He moves to strike, but Hermione stops him. You can't hurt a baby. Well, hold on. <laughs> it's only like 10% a baby. Give us Rita Skeeter's take here. I, I mean, listen, it's only a baby from the neck up. That, of course, is something Voldemort would do. They move and two more Death Eaters find them, knocking them back with impedimenta. As Hermione's complimenting Harry in a well-timed Patricus Totalis, from the book, the Death Eater Hermione had just struck dumb with Silencio, made a sudden slashing movement with his wand, from which flew a streak of what looked like purple flame. It passed right through Hermione's chest. She gave a tiny O oh, as though of surprise and then crumpled onto the floor where she lay motionless. Hermione, Harry falls down beside her. Neville crawls to her, but as he does, the Death Eater kicks out, breaking Neville's wand and nose. He removes his mask and Harry recognizes him from the prophet as Dolohoff, who murdered the Pruitts, Molly's family. He mimes for Harry to give him the prophecy to get the same as Hermione got. Harry's beside himself with terror, thinking to himself, don't let her be dead. Don't let her be dead. It's my fault if she's dead. But it is Neville's turn to be brash on. Neville's turn to display uncommon coverage. Whatever you do, Harry said Neville fiercely from under the desk, lowering his hands to show a clearly broken nose and blood pouring down his mouth and chin. Don't give it to him. The baby D.E.'s entrance grants Harry the moment he needs to cast a spell. And with Dolohoff out of the picture for a moment, Harry and Neville check Hermione and find a pulse. From the book, such a powerful wave of relief swept through Harry that for a moment he felt lightheaded. Harry tells Neville to go, take Hermione, flee, raise the alarm. He must find the others. But Neville has been blooded in battle now. Even before the fight broke out, he made his choice when he followed Harry into the forest and insisted on accompanying him to London. And as we'll see in mere pages, seeing his parents' torturers in the flesh has impacted him powerfully. He insists on staying with Harry. And with Harry's help, Neville hoists Hermione onto his shoulders. The boy who could have been the chosen one, literally carrying some of the weight of Harry's choices— kicking aside the fragments of his father's old wand, setting out to avenge the man from whom he inherited it, and in so doing, becoming his own man at last. 
They are back in the circular room when Ron, Ginny, and Luna fall out of a door. Quote, Ron's face was very white and something dark was trickling from the corner of his mouth. Harry asks Ginny what happened, but she can't speak, collapsing in pain. And Luna says that Ginny's ankle is broken. They were chased into a room full of planets. Luna blew up Pluto to save Ginny, who was injured in the process. She's not sure what spell they put on Ron. They don't even know what happened to him. One of Harry's best friends is unconscious. The other is suffering from some unknown malady. His future wife is wounded. Neville is wounded and wandless, though smartly using Hermione's now that his own has been destroyed. The situation is as dire as it could possibly be. And the question that seemed so unimportant when they first arrived is now a barrier to survival. They still don't know where the exit is. Ginny thought it was important, to be fair. <laughs> As he's trying, one door another opens, and it's Bella at the head of more Death Eaters. They run back into the brain room. They're sealing doors but can't reach the last one in time, and Luna's hit. Ron, still a fucking mess, totally unaware that Bellatrix is pursuing them to the death, notices the brains, and drawn by their strangeness, Akio is one. The scene seemed f- momentarily frozen. It flies toward Ron from the book. Ribbons of moving images flew from it, unraveling like rolls of film. Thoughts. Ron catches it, and the tentacles like ropes begin to bind him. When Ginny cries out, she's hit and knocked out. Neville's trying to shout curses, but his broken nose is inhibiting his ability to cast magic. No magic occurs, and that's really, really bad news because it's now just Harry and Neville versus Death Eaters. Harry runs. The prophecy held high, attempting to draw the Death Eaters away. This is Harry's recklessness at its most inspiring. He does not care what happens to him here. His only thought is to do whatever he can to spare those who risk so much for him. And it works. They follow. Harry runs so fast into the next room that he falls down the stone stairs. From the book, with a crash that knocked all the breath out of his body, he landed flat on his back in the sunken pit where the stone archway stood. The death room. Oh, boy. Here we go. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here at The Ringer, we have our disagreements. But there shouldn't be any debate about this. Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer. With only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs, fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light. So there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let us hear it. Till then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite. Hold true. And now, back to binge mode. Harry stands, the prophecy miraculously unbroken Death Eaters all around him, and he climbs backward onto the dais. Quote, the Death Eaters all halted, gazing at him. Do they know what the veil is? Can they sense it? Mm. They know they have him trapped, that's for sure. His back may not be against a wall, but it's against a portal to the afterlife. He says, quote, let Let the others go and I'll give it to you, said Harry desperately. You are not in a position to bargain, Potter, Lucius says. You see, there are ten of us and only one of you. Or hasn't Dumbledore ever taught you how to count? This is reminiscent of the moment in the graveyard when Voldemort is taunting him, playing with him. And then, he's not alone, shouted a voice from above them. He's still got me. This is Neville with his broken nose, and the passage continues. Harry's heart sank. 
Neville was scrambling down the stone benches toward them, Hermione's wand held fast in his trembling hand. This moment is everything. This is so wonderful. Is it reckless of Neville to charge into a room full of murderers when he doesn't have his own wand and can't currently speak a spell aloud? Would it be reckless of him to do so if all circumstances were ideal? Yes and yes, but that's what makes it so admirable. This is, of course, something Harry would do. Neville has spent years wondering why I'm going to (laughs) cry. I just love Neville. Neville has spent years wondering why the sorting hat put him in Gryffindor, feeling unworthy of the designation, unworthy of his parents' legacy, unworthy of his own last name. He has never needed to do anything more than to just be himself, to earn all of those things fully. And right here, right now, in the shadow of death, he's realizing it. He's brave. He's strong. He's ready to fight. But the math is bad for them. Mm-hmm. A Death Eater seizes him, and a wrenching exchange ensues. It's Longbottom, isn't it? Sneered Lucius Malfoy. Well, your grandmother is used to losing family members to our cause. Your death will not come as a great shock. Longbottom, repeated Bellatrix, and a truly evil smile lit her gaunt face. Why, I have had the pleasure of meeting your parents, boy. I know you have, roared Neville, and he fought so hard against his captors in circling grip that the Death Eater shouted, Someone stun him! Bellatrix doesn't want to stun him. She wants to play with her new toy. Unless Harry will hand over the prophecy to spare his friend, Neville is pleading with Harry not to give it to him. Don't give it to him. Bellatrix hits Neville with the Cruciatus Curse, the one she used to torture his parents. Remember how Neville watched Bardai Moody employing the curse in class and how the horror of finally seeing it, finally understanding what his parents suffered through, washed over him. Now he's experiencing it firsthand. He twitches and screams. She gives Harry one last chance. Hand it over or watch Neville die. Harry did not have to think. There was no choice. The prophecy was hot with the heat from his clutching hand as he held it out. Malfoy jumped forward to take it. Oh, my God. That Neville Bellatrix moment fucking kills me every time. Just as Harry's about to concede, two doors burst open and saviors enter the room. Lupin, Moody, Tonks, Kingsley, Sirius, of course, his godfather here. The man he came to save now here to save him. We will learn at book's end that after Harry failed to return from the forest, Snape, having already contacted Sirius to confirm that he was home, reached out to other members of the Order of the Phoenix. We will learn as well that he asked Sirius to stay home. But here Sirius is, after 12 years in jail and three in some type of hiding, showing his face, not just in public, but in the bowels of the Ministry of Magic itself. This is indefensibly insane. Mm -hmm. Aside from the only defense that counts, he's there for Harry. All year long, his restlessness and sense of inadequacy have gnawed at him, causing him to doubt his own worth. But despite numerous ill-advised transgressions, his trip to the train station as Padfoot, his visit to the fire in Gryffindor Tower, he always stopped short of fully walking out into the world. But Harry drew him forth here. Nothing but love for his godson would have led to this. And that's what makes it so reckless. Love can lead us, yes, but it can also blind us. A massive battle ensues. It's Tonks engages Malfoy, Harry flees to Neville, and then a Death Eater, we learn as McNair, grabs Harry, and he feels as though he's dying, the pressure on his windpipe, that severe. 
Neville, unable to speak a spell, stabs McNair in the eye with Hermione's wand. Dolohov hits Neville with Terence Allegra, causing his legs to snap into a tap dance and tries to hit Harry with the same spell he used on Hermione. Harry saves himself. Protego then is saved by Sirius, who gauges Dolohov in a battle. Harry now helps and casts Petrificus Totalis again. Nice one, Sirius shouts. A brief, beautiful moment of praise, a shared moment before the end. Sirius tells Harry to grab the prophecy and run. Lucius chases them as they do, and Harry, in desperation, tosses the prophecy to Neville. Harry curses Lucius, who smashes into the dais, where Sirius and Bellatrix are now dueling. Lucius braces to attack, and Lupin jumps between them, screaming for Harry to get the others and go. All these people Harry loves here to save him on the front lines of a war because he made it necessary for them, yes, but also because they want it to be. The unrivaled tension of the argument between Sirius and Fred didn't hide the potency of Sirius's point. The Order members, minus Mundungus, perhaps, are in the group because they really believe. In Dumbledore, in Harry, they're risking everything before it because it's the only way to save everything. Harry, desperately trying to seize the still jinx Neville, hoists his robes. They tear, releasing the prophecy that he stored in his pocket, and it falls. Quote, as both of them stared at the place where it had broken, appalled at what had happened, a pearly white figure with hugely magnified eyes, hmm, who do we know with hugely magnified eyes, mm. rose into the air unnoticed by any but them. Harry could see its mouth moving, but in all the crashes and screams and yells surrounding them, not one word of the prophecy could he hear. And the figure stopped speaking and dissolved into nothingness. As we'll learn in two chapters, that's Trelawney issuing these fateful words. Just then, Back in the death chamber, when all seems lost, Dumbledore arrives. Quote, directly above them, framed in the doorway from the brain room, stood Albus Dumbledore, his wand aloft, his face white and furious. Harry felt a kind of electric charge surge through every particle of his body. They were saved. When the Death Eaters see Dumbledore, they cower. One tries to flee, and Dumbledore pulls him back with ease. Quote, as though he had hooked him with an invisible line. Only one pair seems not to have noticed that Dumbledore is there, Sirius and Bellatrix. From the book, Harry saw Sirius duck Bellatrix's jet of red light. He was laughing at her. Come on, you can do better than that. He yelled, his voice echoing around the cavernous room. The second jet of light hit him squarely on the chest. The laughter had not quite died from his face, but his eyes widened in shock. Harry lets go of Neville and runs. From the book again, it seemed to take Sirius an age to fall. His body curved in a graceful arc as he sank backward through the ragged veil hanging from the arch. And Harry saw the look of mingled fear and surprise on his godfather's wasted once handsome face as he fell through the ancient doorway and disappeared behind the veil, which fluttered for a moment as though in a high wind and then fell back into place. Bellatrix screams in triumph, but Harry doesn't understand why. Surely Sirius is just on the other side of this, where Harry thought he had heard him earlier from the book, but Sirius did not reappear. Harry is screaming for him. Lupin runs up and is trying to tell him, it's gone. It's too late, Harry. And Harry's saying, get him, save him. He's only just gone through. Lupin is adamant. No, there's nothing you can do, Harry. Nothing. He's gone. <sighs> Chapter 36, the only one he ever feared. What if Sirius had listened to Snape and stayed at Grimald Place? Would he be alive? Maybe. But would he have been able to live with himself if someone else had died instead? Someone like Lupin? Someone like Harry? No, of course not. What if when engaged in battle with his cousin, as Jason just said, he hadn't wasted that fraction of a second taunting her? Come on, you can do better than that. 
You know, I bet you if Harry wasn't there too, he wouldn't have been showing off for him. <sighs> Maybe. Just like he and James used to show off for each other. Yeah. What if he had been kinder to Creature, never inciting the elf's betrayal? What if Harry, who will wallow in his grief in the coming chapters, blaming himself, had thought to open the package that Sirius had given him over the holidays and had used the mirror to confirm that he was home? What if Snape had made it to the forest before Harry escaped? What if Dumbledore had told Harry more, given Sirius more? What if Harry had never found out that he was a wizard in the first place, had never entered into the magical world and discovered the riches of friendship and wonder waiting for him? At least then he wouldn't feel this loss because you can't mourn what you've never had. On and on and on the questions go. But the time turners are shattered. This can't be undone. And anyway, as Dumbledore will soon say, some wounds run too deep for the healing. And as he told Harry last year, no spell can reawaken the dead. But is he dead? Clues abound that he wasn't hit with the killing curse. The prior spell that Bellatrix mm -hmm. sends Sirius's way is a, quote, jet of red light. Red, not green. And the next spell, the decisive one that hits him in the chest, isn't described any differently. What's more, we know that Avada Kedavra kills instantly. The descriptions of Sirius's face here prove that he is still alive after being hit with that spell. The spell is not what kills him. The fall through the veil is. The veil death embodied, the rushing sound that accompanies the killing curse when Harry hears it in his nightmares, his dementor-induced memories. Bardai Moody's demonstrations, go back and read those descriptions. Always this rush of sound, always this veil. This all sparked an incredible amount of speculation and desperate hope among fans who, like Harry in the moments after Sirius's fall, did not want to accept that this had happened, that this was final. The laughter on his face, the eyes wide with shock, the mix of fear and surprise. Could he be on the other side? Could he be alive? Could he come back through? The fact that the answer is no, despite the curse itself not being fatal, makes it all somehow more painful. In Sirius, Harry finally found his father figure, his brother, his best friend. And to have that all ripped away from him by the unknown, by the unnecessary, to have Sirius, who was so close to freedom, join that whispering mass that calls to Harry is almost incomprehensibly sad. In Prisoner of Azkaban, Dumbledore tells Harry, quote, you think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble. He is speaking then of James, but the line applies to Sirius too, to any lost loved one at any time in any place. And as Harry roars in misery, shouting that Sirius isn't gone, that he isn't dead, we get one of the most gutting lines in the entire series. Quote, but some part of him realized, even as he fought to break free from Lupin. This is so sad that Sirius had never kept him waiting before. <laughs> Sirius had risked everything always to see Harry to help him. Harry quiets and stills and Neville approaches him and he asks, was that man, Sirius Black, a friend of yours? Sirius was so much more than that for Harry. He was carefree and handsome and brave, but in many ways his life was a terrible tragedy. And finding Harry gave him something worth fighting for. They were the family that the other one chose. The family that Harry spent a lifetime craving. 
and now it's gone. When Bellatrix hits Kingsley, then deflects Dumbledore's curse and runs, Harry rips free of Lupin's grasp and goes careening after her. Sirius's death happened so suddenly that Harry has barely had time to accept that it in fact did happen. But the sight of Bella fleeing the scene and the possibility that she might escape makes it very real for Harry. She killed Sirius, bellowed Harry. She killed him. I'll kill her. Righteous rage has taken hold of him. He passes his friends as he pursues her, and they lay in various states of injury like wreckage. More examples, these thankfully still living, of the impact of Harry's recklessness. Yes. From the book, he leapt over Luna, who was groaning on the floor. Past Ginny, who said, Harry, what? Past Ron, who giggled feebly, and Hermione, who was still unconscious. He wrenched open the door into the circular black hall and saw Bellatrix disappearing through a door on the other side of the room. Who knows at this point if these people are going to ever be okay again? Harry catches up to her in the atrium, and Bella can't resist pouring salt in the wound in Harry's heart. Come out, come out, little Harry, she called in her mock baby voice, which echoed off the polished wooden floors. What did you come after me for then? I thought you were here to avenge my dear cousin. I am, shouted Harry, and a score of ghostly Harrys seemed to course. I am, I am, I am all around the room. Ah, did you love him, little baby Potter? The foul nature of this verbal assault, turning Harry's love and grief over Sirius against him, is disgraceful. From the book, hatred rose in Harry such as he had never known before. He flung himself out behind the fountain and bellowed, Crucio. Harry has just attempted to use an unforgivable curse on another human being. We know that the use of such a curse warrants a life sentence in Azkaban. We know that these are the tools of the foulest humans, Voldemort and his followers. We know that Harry has fallen victim to this curse, has felt pain that he described as, quote, beyond anything he had ever experienced. We also know that this pain, the pain from Sirius's death, is really the greatest of his life. This is the new standard, the new beyond for Harry. And it's pushing him to act in a way that's contrary to his nature, though not in a way that he will never experience again. More on that later. The spell knocks Bellatrix over, but does no more than that. Never used an unforgivable curse before, have you, boy? She yelled. She had abandoned her baby voice now. You need to mean them, Potter. They battle, and as they do, she tells him that she'll give him one more chance to hand over the prophecy. And he tells her that she'll have to kill him because it's gone, smashed. And as he says this, the pain in his head sears, quote, and he felt a surge of fury that was quite unconnected with his own rage. And he knows, said Harry, with a mad laugh to match Bellatrix's. When she replies, Harry hears fear in her voice for the first time. She calls him a liar. She tries to use Akio to fetch the prophecy, but there is nothing left to summon. No, she screamed. It isn't true. You're lying. Master, I tried. I tried. Do not punish me. Don't waste your breath, yelled Harry. His eyes screwed up against the pain in his scar, now more terrible than ever. He can't hear you from here. And then we get one of the most chilling lines, one of the most shocking moments in the entire series. Can't I, Potter? <laughs> Said a high, cold voice. Voldemort is here. Remember what we said above. There's recklessness on all sides here. All sides are acting foolishly. For Harry, everything has changed in the past few hours. The emotional foundation of his life has crumbled. Plenty has changed for Voldemort, too. The prophecy is gone. His Death Eaters are engaged in open rebellion in the Ministry of Magic. Dumbledore has joined the fight, but one thing has not changed. If he shows up at the Ministry, there's no hiding anymore. The Death Eaters broke out of Azkaban. They could maybe be there of their own accord. Bellatrix tortured the Longbottoms after Voldemort fell, after all. 
And yet he is here showing a foolish brashness of his own, ending of his own accord the possibility that Fudge and company will be able to provide cover for him any longer. Yep. So you smashed my prophecies, said Voldemort softly, staring at Harry with those pitiless red eyes. No, Bella, he is not lying. I see the truth looking at me for within his worthless mind. Months of preparation, months of effort, and my Death Eaters have let Harry Potter thwart me again. Ah, now we see why Voldemort is here. He came to gloat, to dunk on Harry, to abuse his supporters, to stew in the wreckage of his latest failure. But he doesn't know yet the extent of his own failure, the makeup of the order crew here to do battle. Bellatrix tries to tell him, but master, he's here, he is below. When Tom Riddle was just a boy, he fashioned himself a name he knew others would one day fear to speak. And in this moment, Bellatrix treats Dumbledore with the same kind of terrified reverie. She doesn't use his name. She only says he, as though there can be no mistaking who this person is. Voldemort ignores her completely. He has eyes only for Harry and for getting rid of the goose egg in that 0-4 record. It's very tough. I have nothing more to say to you, Potter, he said quietly. You have irked me too often, for too long. Avada Kedavra! The book continues. Harry had not even opened his mouth to resist. His mind was blank, his wand pointing uselessly at the floor. But the headless statue from the fountain springs to life, acting as a shield for Harry. What? said Voldemort, staring around. And then he breathed. Is that Albus Dumbledore's music? Dun, dun, dun. No, just kidding. He just said Dumbledore, but you get the point. Remember, Dumbledore is wanted by the Ministry of Magic also. And yet, he promised that Corn Fudge would regret ousting him. And here he is making good on his word. He was never going to languish in the shadows. Voldemort immediately sends a killing curse Dumbledore's way and their dance begins. Dumbledore disappearing in a swish of his cloak, then emerging to bring the rest of the statues to life. The witch pins Bellatrix, the centaur heads toward Voldemort. The goblin and the house elf go for help. The wizard pins Harry back away from the duel, as Dumbledore says. It was foolish to come here tonight, Tom, said Dumbledore calmly. The aurors are on their way. By which time I shall be gone and you dead, spat Voldemort. This is far from a thoughtless taunt. It is Mm -hmm. one of the most iconic exchanges in the book. Calling Voldemort Tom is an epic intentional flex by Dumbledore, who knows that it will incense him, who refuses to play into his ego, and who, after everything, including the memories that we'll see in Prince, is still in some way always trying to appeal to any remaining shred of humanity within. Voldemort's killing curse misses, sending the guard's desk up in flames. Though Dumbledore's next spell is issued with a mere flick of the wand, the force is such that Harry feels his hair stand on end. Voldemort has to conjure a shield to block it, and after he generates an oddly chilling sound, Voldemort says, quote, you do not seek to kill me, Dumbledore? Called Voldemort, his scarlet eyes narrowed over the top of the shield. Above such brutality, are you? <laughs> We both know that there are other ways of destroying a man, Tom, Dumbledore said calmly, continuing to walk toward Voldemort as though he had not a fear in the world, as though nothing had happened to interrupt his stroll up the hall. Merely taking your life would not satisfy me, I admit. There's nothing worse than death, Dumbledore, snarled Voldemort. You are quite wrong, said Dumbledore, still closing in upon Voldemort, speaking as lightly as though they were discussing the matter over drinks. Harry felt scared to see him walking along undefended, shieldless. He wanted to cry out a warning, but his heedless guard kept shunting him backward toward the wall, blocking his every attempt to get out from behind it. Indeed, 
Your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. That exchange taps into much of what's at the heart of this story. Choice, perception, priority, sacrifice, acceptance, embrace. Dumbledore, like Harry, knows that there are things much worse than death because he's experienced that reality firsthand. Dumbledore's family was torn apart. As we'll learn over the course of Prince and Hallows, and as we will hopefully learn much more about in the Fantastic Beasts films as we further explore the Dumbledore-Grindelwald relationship, Dumbledore spent much of the rest of his life blaming himself for his sister's death, mistrusting himself around power, worrying, knowing what his ambition had cost. Voldemort does not understand this. He thinks only of his standing, his thirst for more, more power, more followers, more control, more life. Remember what Quirrell says to Harry in stone, parroting Voldemort's teachings. There is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. We learn over the course of the series that the real power comes from having the strength not to seek it or to use it well once it's acquired. It is a curious thing, Dumbledore will say to Harry in King's Cross in Deathly Hallows, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. We speak of this idea often when discussing our other favorite story, A Song of Ice and Fire, and the way that George R. R. Martin's saga tends to reward reluctant leaders. Harry is a reluctant leader. It took Dumbledore a long time to become a well-organized mind to whom death would be but the next great adventure. Voldemort never found that courage or that strength or that clarity, always believing that his life was worth more than his soul and that there was no tax too heavy to pay. It's a crippling blindness, a debilitating mania that causes him to discount so much and so many, to rip his soul asunder until he doesn't even know can't even feel when pieces of it are being destroyed. One of the most famous quotes from the series is, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Neither does it do to dwell on living forever at the cost of living well. They fight on. Another killing curse deflected, a rope of fire dispersed from Dumbledore's wand. But Voldemort turns the flame into a serpent, which turns toward Dumbledore to strike. A burst of fire appears above Dumbledore, just as the snake strikes and a killing curse heads his way as Dumbledore vanishes the snake. From the book, Fox swooped down in front of Dumbledore, opened his beak wide, and swallowed the jet of green light whole. He burst into flame and fell to the floor, small, wrinkled, and flightless. He raises the water from the fountain to cover Voldemort, as in a case of glass. This is also in the movie. I'm glad they kept that part in the movie. He momentarily struggles to throw off the mass, and then he vanishes. Bellatrix screams out of fear. Harry, sure it's over, goes to move, but Dumbledore shouts, Stay where you are, Harry. And for the first time, Dumbledore sounded frightened. Harry's not sure why. And then from the book, Harry's scar burst open. He knew he was dead. It was pain beyond imagining, pain past endurance. He was gone from the hall. He was locked in the coils of a creature with red eyes so tightly bound that Harry did not know where his body ended and the creatures began. They were fused together, bound by pain, and there was no escape. This description is among our biggest Horcrux clues to date, an unwanted union, a joint Being bound by pain, Voldemort possessing Harry speaks with his mouth. Kill me now, Dumbledore. If death is nothing, Dumbledore, kill the boy. Harry, blinded by pain, thinks to himself, let the pain stop. Let him kill us. End it, Dumbledore. Death is nothing compared to this, and I'll see Sirius again. And as Harry's heart filled with emotion, the creature's coils loosen. The pain was gone. Harry was lying face down on the floor, his glasses gone, shivering as though he lay upon ice, not 
would. And it's Harry's love in that moment for Sirius, his longing for him, that breaks the fever of Voldemort's possession. We'll learn next chapter that Voldemort could not stand the force of Harry's love in that moment. It's a literal manifestation of what Dumbledore is always telling Harry. Love is the greatest power, a power the Dark Lord does not know. Voldemort in his reckless fury never pays credence to this emotion. And it costs him here. It costs him when he came for Harry as a baby, and it will cost him again in the end. When Harry opens his eyes, Dumbledore is above him, and the atrium is full of people. Voldemort is gone. We hear a man shouting to Fudge that you know who grabbed a woman and disapparated. Corn, wearing pajamas, says he knows, he saw. His obstinance has been fiercely reckless, and look at the cost. Sirius is dead. Voldemort has infiltrated the ministry. There's no more reason for the Dark Lord to hide. How can this be, Fudge asks, revealing that he has learned absolutely nothing from his pathetic failures, his malpractice. Dumbledore speaks boldly, unafraid. Again, remember, he is still a wanted man. Nothing that we've seen from Fudge would guarantee a rational reaction here, despite having seen Voldemort firsthand. Dumbledore tells Corrin that several escaped Death Eaters are bound in the Death Chamber awaiting justice. Dumbledore, gasped Fudge, apparently beside himself with amazement. You, here, I, I. And then he looks at his horrors and the passage goes. And it could not have been plainer that he was in half a mind to cry. Seize him. <laughs> tough look for Fudge here. It's very, very tough look for my guy, Corn Fudge. <laughs> Dumbledore stands tall, saying, Cornelius, I am ready to fight your men and win again. <laughs> Please come at me again. <laughs> Please do this, Fudge. <laughs> Give me a reason, Corn. And he's described as speaking in a thunderous voice. He continues, but a few minutes ago, you saw proof with your own eyes that I have been telling you the truth for a year. Lord Voldemort has returned. You have been chasing the wrong men for 12 months, and it is time you listened to sense. Not to Dumbledore, not to Harry, just to reason, to logic, to sense, to the truth. Fudge's attention then is drawn toward Harry. Here, said Fudge. Why? What's this all about? Dumbledore then insists on sending Harry back to Hogwarts. No safer place. Certainly safer than the ministry right now for once. At which point he says he will tell Fudge everything. He grabs the severed wizard statue's head and turns it into an unauthorized portkey, much to Fudge's right in chagrin. front, of, right in front of the guy, Fudge. <laughs> Fudge flails. Now, see here, Dumbledore, you haven't got authorization for that port key. You can't do things like that right in front of the Minister of Magic. You, you. Imagine caring about that in this moment. Dumbledore should be like, well, turn around then, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to see this shit, then turn the fuck around. <laughs> Dumbledore looks at him and corn wilts under the force of his stare. You will give the order to remove Dolores Umbridge from Hogwarts, said Dumbledore. You will tell your Aurors to stop searching for my care of magical creatures, teacher, so that he can return to work. I will give you, Dumbledore pulled a watch with 12 hands from his pocket and glanced at it, half an hour of my time tonight in which I think we shall be more than able to cover the important points of what has happened here. After that, I shall need to return to my school. If you need more help from me, you are, of course, more than welcome to contact me at Hogwarts. Letters addressed to the headmaster will find me. He tells Harry to take the portkey. He tells him he'll see him in half an hour. One two, three. I understand why this book is tough for people because you're just so far in Harry's head. And let's be fair, the head of a 15-year-old is not a comfortable place to be for 15-year-olds or anyone else. Mm -hmm. You're struggling against boundaries. You want to be taken seriously as an adult. 
Adults, meanwhile, look at you. They still see a kid, a very insistent child, but they want to give you that responsibility, but they're just not sure. And then when you take that responsibility on for yourself, you're just bound to fail. Now, magnify that by magic, Mm -hmm. a wizarding war that's been going on for decades, the power of life and death, people believing in you and following you. A 15-year-old placed in that position of ordering people to do stuff, to follow him, to take a decision that he made that is obviously mistaken because he wasn't given all the facts because the adults didn't trust him. That's very relatable. And in this context, it's just incredibly emotionally fraught, devastating, powerful. And you couldn't have gotten there without that angst, that real teen angst of hers. You just could not have got to this place that is incredible. And really my favorite chapters in the book is this ending. It's just absolutely a gut punch of an ending. It is. It's just such a masterful blend of pace and plotting and character development and advancing the mythology, but never at the cost of the emotional impact. It's just an incredible It's the Empire Strikes Back of this series in the sense that, you know, nobody really wins. There's a lot of fighting and Many, many people pay a price, but everybody comes out with their nose bloody. Totally. In ways that are shocking and will change the story forever as you go on. It's really a great book. It was foolish to come here tonight, Mal. The restricted section is on its way. By which time I shall have explained the history of duels in the wizarding world. In that case, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know. About duels. The duel carries a long and prestigious history in wizarding societies. Centuries ago, the term warlock specifically referred to a wizard who was, quote, learned in dueling and all martial magic, according to a note in The Warlock's Harry Hart from The Tales of Beetle the Bard. And it's no wonder that a specific term of reverence would be developed for those skilled in the ways of the duel. So how do duels work? Much like with their muggle counterparts, wizard duels come in two broad varieties. First, there are formal duels with rules and regulations. Think the boxing matches at which Dudley excels or the coordinated jousts in A Game of Thrones. This is the type to which Harry was first introduced back in Chamber of Secrets, when the bumbling Gilderoy Lockhart started a dueling club. Participants bow respectfully to one another before starting and aiming not to kill. This kind of duel prizes clever wand work, and as Hermione notes in Chamber, Professor Flitwick is rumored to have been a champion back in the day. Then there are informal duels, no-holds-barred affairs like brawls in the street or pitched in hectic battles. No knights of summer here! As the series progresses, this is the variety that Harry experiences far more often. In The Graveyard and Goblet, Voldemort mocks the customs of a proper duel, forcing Harry to bow to death. And this entire frenetic set of chapters and order is full of fierce and brutal competition with no regard for formalities. The same goes in the climaxes of Prince and Hallows, where nimble wand work is required, but so too, and far more, is determination and spontaneous ability. Even in the Hogwarts halls or among students on the train, spontaneous dueling is not uncommon, as Harry and Malfoy remind us on many an occasion. 
In one notable instance in the mid-20th century described in Dumbledore's notes in The Fountain of Fair Fortune in Beetle, two female students involved in a love triangle began dueling during a school drama production. It was apparently so fierce that staff had to evacuate the hall lest they be caught in the crossfire. And then Headmaster Dippet announced a resolute ban on Hogwarts theater from that day forward. Tough stuff for Wizarding Britain's perspective thespians. I wonder if it was Hamilton. In addition to the skill of the Witcher Wizard, wand lore can affect a duel's outcome as well. On Pottermore, Rowling has provided information about different wand woods taken, she says, from the notes of Mr. Ollivander. Red oak makes a perfect dueling wand, the wizened wand maker explains, as it matches best with a Witcher Wizard possessed of unnaturally quick reactions. Rowan serves owners well in duels because of its capacity for extremely strong defensive charms. And you, produces wands suited for powerful and in many cases dark magic in the event of a duel. Voldemort, famously, fared quite well with a wand made of yew and phoenix feather. Quite well minus that 0-4 record. The most famous dueling wood, though, is none of the above, but Aspen. Ollivander writes, quote, The proper owner of the Aspen wand is often an accomplished duelist, or destined to be so, for the Aspen wand is one of those particularly suited to martial magic. There was even a secretive 18th-century dueling club named the Silver Spears that accepted only members who wielded aspen wands. Famous duel winners in magical history include Alberta Toothill, tough stuff there with that last name, who, according to a chocolate frog card, won the All-England Wizarding Dueling Competition in 1430 by defeating the favorite, Samson Wilbon, with a blasting curse. There's also Elizabeth Smudgling, who either invented or popularized Harry's true love, Expelliarmus, and used it to win the title of Supreme Dueler in 1379. And of course, there's Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore, who repelled Tom's efforts in a quick duel in this section of order and bested Grindelwald in 1945 in a duel that Dog Breath Doge writes was the greatest in history. That latter duel also transferred ownership of the Elder Wand to Dumbledore. Surprisingly, we know of only one other occasion on which the Elder Wand changed allegiance because of a duel, when Egbert the Egregious defeated Emmerich the Evil in the Middle Ages. Every other known passing, though, involves some measure of stealth, foul play, or coincidence, such as when Harry disarms Draco of a different wand entirely. That relationship only strengthens the idea of Dumbledore as a truly special wizard, skilled enough to overcome not only his powerful former friend, but also a powerful wand. The fifth installment of the Fantastic Beasts film franchise is coming within the next several years, and we cannot wait to learn a great deal more about this ever-important duel then. Jason? Yeah? You are not in a position to bargain. You see, there are seven nuggets to get to, <laughs> and only two of us. Or hasn't Isaac taught you how to count? He tried, but it's been tough. <laughs> It's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Order chapters 34 through 36, because seven remains the most powerfully uh -huh. magical number. You go first. Uh -huh. Number one, Rowling's decision to destroy the time turners in the pitched battle in the middle of the ministry was not an accident, but rather a deliberate decision to remove the possibility of, why didn't they use time turners? Mm -hmm. Which... Like, really clutch move by her, I gotta mm -hmm. say. Remember, as we noted in our restricted section on Time Turners, Prisoner of Azkaban, book pod four, Rowling said she felt that she, quote, went 
far too lightheartedly into the subject of time travel, which opened up a vast number of problems for me because after all, if wizards could go back and undo problems, where are my future plots? Which begs the question, why did time turners return in Cursed Child? Perhaps because it's not canon? (laughs) (laughs) Number two. In the next set of chapters, Dumbledore will tell Harry that the locked door in the Department of Mysteries, quote, contains a force that is at once more wonderful and more terrible than death, than human intelligence, than forces of nature. It is love. And J.K.R. has shared more about how the magic of that particular room works from a 2008 interview with our girl, Melissa Anelli. Quote, it's the place where they study what love means. So that room, I believe, would have at its center, a kind of fountain or well containing a love potion. Hey! A very powerful love potion. You know that the first time they ever enter Slughorn's potions class, and he starts talking about Amortentia, the love potion, and he says it's the most dangerous one in the room. Well, that's what they would have found in the love room. So you would see wizards and witches taking it. They would study the effects. The room, of course, has to be locked. I love it. Number three. Bellatrix tells Harry he's got to mean it when he uses the Cruciatus Curse, which he fails to fully employ. Here, he also fails in Prince when Snape cuts him off midway through the incantation following Dumbledore's death and tells him he hasn't the nerve or the ability, but succeeds in Hallows when he uses on Amicus Caro in Ravenclaw Tower. Harry just out there using Unforgivables on the reg. Like he multiple really, attempts at Crucio, he uses Imperio. It's kind of, well, you know, they say the it's the hardest one is the first one. After that, it's like you've already used it. Routine. If you're not going to be forgiven for the first one, then the, you know the other ones are not compounding them. And you know what? It's not like any of these people didn't. Well, Snape was didn't deserve it, but obviously, like everyone else, the fucking goblin at Gringotts deserved to be mind controlled. It was tough stuff for him, but they needed. <laughs> There was a mission that needed to be accomplished. It's, it's true. That's I, true. I remember being absolutely shocked at that moment. Yeah, it's I was stunning. like, I was like, holy, sh- whoa! <laughs> they we're doing this now. <laughs> I was, sh- I was shocked when that happened in the book. It is shocked. It is stunning. Number four, we have spoken a lot today about Neville, but there's one other thing that we want to note: the way that Neville and Harry are paired in this sequence, standing together alone mm-hmm. at the end in the death chamber. Neville ready to fight when it seems that Harry's hope is lost brilliantly foreshadows Neville's role in Deathly Hallows. When, after Harry has chosen not to say goodbye to Ron and Hermione on his walk to the forest, he entrusts the secret of Nagini to Neville, tasking him with finishing the job, making sure someone else knows. Either Neville or Harry could have been the chosen one. It's poetic that as the prophecy that defined Harry's life finally falls into his hand in these chapters, Neville is there with him. And it's perfect that as Harry puts those words to bed at last, Neville is there again, refusing to cower, refusing to give up, standing up to Voldemort with the sword of Godric Gryffindor in his hand. Great shit from my guy, Neville. Number five. Harry took one glance back at the Thestrals now foraging for scraps of rotten food inside the dumpster, then forced himself into the box after Luna. Is this, is this really the best we can do? I mean, for these wonderful magical creatures after this long journey, at which point they are surely fucking famished. Famished. Like Harry, my guy, they flew you from the fucking Highlands Harry, to London. Harry. And the best you can do is a grateful pat. It is a theme oh, yeah. of the book. Yes. Harry. Not great with his animal companions 
at any point. No. I mean, he's always he's always like fucking screaming at Hedwig. Go do this. Go do that. Put that frog down that I know you just <laughs> killed. Go do this. I mean, the Thestrals would, would literally kill for a frog right now. They're carnivores. You think they're going to find anything in that trash I said, that's I, to their liking? I honestly can't get over taking the frog out of Hedwig's mouth. That's bad. Can she eat the fucking frog? <laughs> It'll take 15 seconds. What the, we're just not going to boil it and fucking chop it up, like, prepare it. She's just going to swallow it and eat it. I know. She can't even eat the frog? Get the fuck out of here. Unbelievable. <laughs> Protect Hedwig. Very tough stuff. Oh, God. Number six. Couple lines that sparked a legion of internet theorizing. First, the fragments of the shattered prophecies. Quote, at the solstice will come anew. End quote. And none will come after. Many wondered. Because the only thing that we had to do was wonder while we were waiting for the rest of the series. Similar to the casual asides, you know, uttered in the Citadel as Sam is exiting the room that people are harping on now. Could these lines, could these snippets signal connections to come? Well, maybe not, but maybe. Maybe. J.K.R. revealed that the name of the last book would be Deathly Hallows on December 21st, 2006, which was the day of the winter solstice. And following that book, of course, none would come after. Probably just a coincidence, but still a fun little thing to note. Also, when Harry is drawn toward the veil, one of the things that he says is, is that you, Ron? Once readers realized over the rest of the book what the veil was, what it represented, what it led to, they agonized over whether that line connecting Ron to those beyond the veil foretold his death. And we've talked about this before, but it's worth noting again here that as we outlined in our second Order of the Phoenix podcast, Rowling has said that she considered killing off Ron at some point in the middle of the series. Thank God she didn't. Yeah. Juan Juan. Juan Juan's got to stay around to look at your anus. Would have been very, very tough. And then who would uh, mind the store? (laughs) Number seven. Luna blows up Pluto in the Department of Mysteries, and Pluto is no longer considered a full planet. Coincidence or not, guys? What do you think? (laughs) Let's give Luna credit for everything. She's just a fucking legend. Love her. Mal? Yeah. We both know there are other ways of destroying a podcast. Mm-hmm. Merely stealing your pick for champion would not satisfy me, I admit. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. <laughs> Albus Dumbledore. As we said above, everybody comes away with a bloody nose here. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Yes. We should also say that in the next set of chapters, the final two chapters in the book, our next podcast, Dumbledore will take one of the biggest L's in the entire series. Well, he's going to give one of the greatest this loss is on me guys speech (laughs) in like sports history. Yes. This This one's on me guys. (laughs) (laughs) This book is in many ways a giant L for Dumbledore, but right here, this is a win. Think about again how Bellatrix speaks about his presence with such fear in her voice. Mm-hmm. Master, he is here. He is below. Even Voldemort's most trusted lieutenants know that Dumbledore is Voldemort's foe. Yeah. The thing that he fears, the only thing that he fears. Voldy does not get the prophecy. I mean, the good guys didn't get it either, but if you have to weigh those things... Dumbledore's got a copy stored in the old pencil. And he was there anyway at the original recording. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was in the studio. He was in the studio when that track got laid down. It was a hot track. <laughs> Sybil had never spit bars like that before, ever. <laughs> and he was there for that. And crucially, Voldemort did not get his hands on it. Also, it was foolish to come here tonight, Tom, an all-time flex. Be like, yeah, I knew you when you were Tom. I know. It's like calling Sting Gordon. <laughs> What's up, Gordon? I know that I say this like six times an episode, but this is really one of my favorite lines in the entire series. It's pretty great. It's one of those moments where you understand why Dumbledore is Dumbledore. The source of his power, the source of this reverence. He just is not fucking around. He, along those lines, defeats numerous Death Eaters with ease. He just wraps them up. He's like, Jason and Mal keep saying that Lucius Malfoy belongs in Azkaban. Here you go. And then there's people like running away from him. He's like, oh, no, you're coming back. Okay, now I've got you all. Like, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Obviously, also, he protects Harry. Yes. Handy little statue employment there. And that's the other thing. He fights Voldemort. You might call it a draw, but it, he's fighting while protecting Harry. It's like Voldemort can just go all out. Right. Dumbledore is like, I have another thing that I have to also do while fighting you with numerous statues and like also my skills. The only time we see panic from Dumbledore is after Voldemort vanishes because he's possessing Harry. But we sense fear from Voldemort many other times during that duel when he first sees Dumbledore, when the suffocating mass of water is over him. Like, I think that if Voldemort doesn't play the I'm going to try to possess Harry card and they just go toe to toe, Dumbledore wins that duel. I agree with you. Obviously, also, we get another fox showing here and just continue to marvel at the loyalty that Dumbledore has earned from Fox, who is a beautiful, magical creature and a, a lord. I bet you he doesn't like get on Fox when Fox, Fox is having a, a snack or do something <laughs> for him. Pets him, treats him well. Making a little like s'mores. Oh, what's that? His... Are, you, are you eating garbage right now? That's fine. Burning day. <laughs> and then right. finally, just emphatically dunks on corn fudge. I mean, listen, emphatically. at that point, it's like you kind of have to. It's like, please stand under the rim. <laughs> My guy, he's like, this is literally Fudge has been saying the whole book. Well, Voldemort's not. And then he see, oh, was that him? Oh, my God. Hold on a second. Dumbledore. Was that was that Voldemort? Get out of here. The only one he ever feared. Great stuff from Albus. Yes. All right, friends. If you need more help from us, you are, of course, more than welcome to contact us at Hogwarts. Letters addressed to the head bingers will find us. Yeah. Thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. And to Bobby Wagner. Thanks, Bobby. For his help today. For giving us far more than half an hour of their time. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be concluding our Order of the Phoenix book discussion, still the movie to come, concluding the book discussion by exploring chapters 37 Mm -hmm. and 38, two of our absolute favorites. Until then, remember, we are not lying. You can see the truth looking at you from within our worthless minds. Did you know your master is a half-blood too? Stop it! Don't talk about Yeah, I bet she doesn't tell you that. I bet she doesn't tell you that his, one of his parents was a mother. Shut up! Don't you speak about Voldemort? You mean Voldemort? (laughs) I've seen him on Instagram and liking other witches' pictures. What?